welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, we have an interview with Dr. Adam Duval, who's an expert on AYA, Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology, and he's here to tell you why that career is so rich, interesting, and satisfying. We also have a couple questions to you coming this week, because this is Plenary Session Season 2, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. But first, I want to take a minute and talk about randomized control trials. Recently, we had the World Conference on Lung Cancer, and the tweets came out fast and furious. And people are saying a phase three randomized controlled trial for RET rearranged lung cancer is neither feasible, nor practical, nor ethical. So we're going to take a close look at that claim and learn the truth about when randomized trials are necessary and when they are not. It's quite simple. And let's see how these tweets fare. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast, and we want to know your feedback on them. All right, we're talking about Loxo-292, or selpercatinib. Selpercatinib. Boy, that's a mouthful. This is a RET inhibitor, and it's the first of its kind that actually looks like it has some response in non-small cell lung cancer. RET, of course, is rearranged in transfection, and that is, of course, a notable oncogene that is found in a number of tumor types, but also, and particularly, non-small cell lung cancer, where it appears with a frequency of 2%. And when you give patients this RET inhibitor, we find that data presented at the World Conference on Lung Cancer finds a response rate of 68%, and those responses lasted for a median of 20.3 months, and patients had progression-free survival of 18.3 months. All right, so those are the numbers. Let me put it to you in another way. Um, one can imagine a patient presents to your clinic with RET fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer. And let's say that this is a 55-year-old man who presents to your clinic. This person, unfortunately, has a diagnosis that is life-limiting. And this person may live on the order of several years, uh, if, we're, if we're so lucky. Um, but this person will have lost something like 20 to 30 um, years of life loss. So that would be the life expectancy of someone, a 55-year-old person who did not have this unfortunate diagnosis. So I think it's important to think about this in terms of the, the time horizon, that actually how much of life is lost by cancer. It's an important way to conceptualize cancer. It's an important way to think about why this is a disease that we really need highly effective therapies and we need to kind of shift the entire survival outcomes for these patients. Okay, I say that, I, that, I say that as background. And I've already told you about LOXO-292, which is selpercatinib. Um, and I'm going to call it LOXO-292 because it's a little bit easier for me to say. 
So it was presented in a 34-patient group, and there's a waterfall plot that looks great, but as Sunny Kim and I showed in JAMA Network Open, you can go ahead and subtract 6 to 12% off a waterfall plot's visual estimation of response rate from the true response rate, because the true response rate is usually 6 to 12% lower than what the visual distortion of a waterfall plot shows. And that's because people who progress right away are not, not even visible on a waterfall plot. And that's because a waterfall plot shows the single best subsequent scan and does not necessarily require a resist 1.1 confirmatory scan. But be that as it may, I think when you're looking at a figure and you're talking about a response rate of 68% in non-small cell lung cancer, I think there's no doubt about it, that is a high response rate. And I think that's what we all will agree right off the bat. That is a highly promising response rate. That's the kind of response rates that really should lead to drug approval. And when we fall very low on response rates, we should perhaps even think abandoning drugs. Um, but this is a decent response rate. There's no doubt about that. So what, what is a question being posed online, which I find fascinating? And I'm going to talk about a couple of tweets and 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 I think both of these, tweet, these tweets are from people I respect, uh, Dr. Antonio Calles uh, from, from Spain, uh, Alfredo Adeo, um, who I respect a great deal. And, and I don't fault these two for posing the question because I believe it might have been even posed at, at the actual session. Uh, I'm not going to say the names of all the people commenting, and that's where I think I'm going to be a little bit more critical. It's about the answer to the question. So they write... Uh, Selpercatinib, formerly LOXO-292 and RET rearranged lung cancer, results from the Libretto-001 Phase 1-2 trial. Key message, a Phase 3 RCT is ongoing in this infrequent alteration. Is it needed, ethical, feasible? What do you think? Alfredo Adeo, great question from so-and-so. Do we need Phase 3 trials in this situation? I'm more inclined to say no, but happy to hear your opinion, guys. And these are what some of the answers say. Agree, not needed here. Or for a couple other targets. Like you said, especially in latter lines where we have no real alternatives. The system has to change. Somebody pushes back on this. They say even imatinib and CML and venmorafenib and BRF melanoma had phase 3 data. Somebody pushed back and said that was almost a decade ago and even more reason not to keep repeating the failed experiment. Or rather, you should be saying even more reason not to keep repeating an experiment we know will be successful because that's, I think, the argument he's trying to make. Completely agree. The consistent results of all these phase 3 trials is one of the major reasons we shouldn't do this anymore. This person pushes back. Is this opinion unique to targeted therapy specifically or to this response rate broadly? Another person adds, I wouldn't be comfortable with patients here being randomized to a control arm of chemo given the efficacy here. Um, somebody says, we do need to do it unless we have good data showing ORR is a valid surrogate for OS or quality of life. Targeting addicted pathways is interesting, but it's not the only, but it's not only about shrinking the tumor. Early resistance mechanisms can dampen the enthusiasm based on ORR beyond the aesthetic of waterfall plots. Well, well, well. Actually, this person is, is, is beating me a little bit to the punch because this person is actually quite astute. So, Dario Trapani, I give you my plenary session star. I didn't see your comment earlier, and I have just liked it. Somebody else replies, I do not need a phase three here. Outcomes are way better with targeted therapies when the target is real. We have seen this over and over. Enough already. And then let me go to the other thread. I, um, One can't help but feel patients need access now. The data is solid. It's time at least for and compassionate access while randomizations can be justified in earlier line. This person, I think, is missing the question. Of course, that is that is what is going to happen here. It's it's up for accelerated approval, and this is a confirmatory study for accelerated approval. So that's actually kind of a moot point. The question about whether or not you need a randomized trial is really, do you need it at all at any point in time? And that's a question if this drug were up for regular approval, which it is not. Um, makes me uncomfortable. Reminds me of Aura 3, which we all knew would be 
hugely po- hugely positive. Oh, we always know the results of these trials. Never been a ROS1 RCT against chemo. We can manage the regulation and health economics with will from pharma and payers. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. <clears throat> What's the point here? I guess I want to talk about this question, which I think, do you need an RCT for a drug with a driver mutation positive non-small cell lung cancer that has a 68% response rate and a PFS of about 18 months? Okay, I, I, want, to, I want to come back to that question. But first, I want to thought, talk a little bit about the thought process. Um, I think what concerns me more than the answer to the question, which I think I could even respectfully disagree with people about the answer, I could, I could hear them and disagree with them, if I felt that they were intelligently considering the question, but when they jump to the answer and they do not intelligently consider the question, then I fear that not only do I disagree with them, but it makes me depressed about the profession of oncology. Um, I think it speaks to a broader anti-intellectual sentiment in this, in this society. And I think it speaks to the fact that this is what I've been calling on this podcast empty cheerleading. You have empty cheerleading, sort of pro-industry rhetoric, um, this belief that newer is always better. Uh, we should never subject things to RCT. Um, I think it all goes together with sort of a, a package of beliefs that's very pro-profit and very anti-patient. And I think it's actually quite thoughtless. And and so I, I fault them for their thinking because I guess I would say I summarize the entire arguments I've seen presented as uh, among the drugs we use today, uh, those with high response rates have generally had favorable PFS in randomized controlled trials. They have not all had favorable OS, but of course we'll dismiss that by crossover. Um, so in other words, among the approved drugs, among the things we can think about immediately that come to mind, um, high response rate like these tend to be associated with positive trials among the approved drugs in non-small cell lung cancer, which is a small set of, of, of targeted therapy. I would say that that is a very a uh, poor way of reasoning. Among a handful of anecdotal approvals, high response rate has gone hand in hand with positive clinical trials. Although, to be honest with you, it's mostly PFS, which they're not saying, but it's mostly PFS in these randomized controlled trials. That's a poor form of reasoning. So here I want to talk about how this should be intelligently considered. This is the kind of discussion that I would have loved to see online, but I didn't see at all. And that's what concerns me. There are a few questions I would like to have answered, and I'm going to answer them for you on this podcast. One, when are RCTs necessary and when are they unnecessary? Two, what do we know about this drug? How well does it work? What do we know it about it? Based on what we know about it, how well do those factors predict what we really care about, living longer or living better? This goes hands in hand with our next question, which I've already answered, which is what do we really care about? And of course, it's only living longer, living better. What happened to these patients with time, the people enrolled in your phase one clinical trial? What would have happened to these patients had they not gotten the drug or gotten a different drug? And finally, is the difference between what you see in this trial and the difference in what would have happened to these people had they not gotten this drug large enough that you believe an RCT is unnecessary? Or in other words, is it a parachute difference? All right, let me answer these questions for, for the people. But again, before I even answer these questions, I want to reiterate my real point. My real point here is not that they disagree about the answer. My real point is that they have not even had the exercise of thought. And they have not had the exercise of thought. They haven't addressed any of these questions online. They just jumped to the answer. No, it's a high response rate. I don't want a randomized trial. I know it's gonna win. And that to me is anti-history of medicine. It's anti-intellectual. It's anti-evidence-based medicine. It's illogical. It speaks volumes about the kind of person who would 
say such a thing. Um, it's really kind of why I, I've been critical of KOLs because KOLs, key opinion leaders, often are not really thought leaders because they don't think well. They don't think systematically. And this is how I think any rational person would think about this. Okay, so let's just take the questions. When are RCTs necessary and when are they unnecessary? Randomized control trials are perfect for interventions that are hypothesized to have modest to marginal effect sizes. If you had a parachute, an intervention with a 99.9999997% absolute risk reduction on mortality over a 15-minute window of time, uh, that's a light switch kind of event. Everyone's dead without the parachute. Everyone but, you know, 7 in 10 million are alive with the parachute. That's a huge effect size, and that's the kind of effect size that you don't need randomization for. Um, randomized control trials separate hope and bias and optimism from real effects. And they're good for modest to marginal effect sizes. They've been done for effect sizes. You know, some positive RCTs are really great. You have absolute risk reductions on mortality, maybe like, you know, 40%. That's the single best we've ever seen in a paper by Ioannidis and colleagues uh, and Tiago Pereira that appeared in JAMA. But I think you need to know a little bit about this, that you need to know that the vast majority, I think, of biomedical practices have modest to marginal effect sizes, particularly on mortality. And um, uh, there has been very few drugs in the history of humanity uh, that, um, that have a truly transformational outcome on a disease course that are really that kind of light switch moment. So this is when RCTs are, are necessary and unnecessary. They're necessary for something with a, a best 5% mortality increase or decrease. Um, they're necessary for something with a 5% mortality benefit because you need to separate the patient selection, the bias that goes into your optimistic beliefs, all sorts of other patterns of care that may have shifted from the real therapeutic intervention of the drug. And, and that's why you need an RCT. And they have time and time again, of course, proven that many other types of, of lesser evidence is, is not good enough for drawing causal conclusions, particularly historical controlled evidence, which is, I think, what people are in the back of their mind making here. Okay, next. What do we know about this drug? Well, as I told you, we know this drug has a 68% response rate, um, which means that 68% of people had their tumor shrink at least 30% or more and had a confirmatory scan. That median duration of response was 20.3 months, and the median progression-free survival was 18.3 months. So I just want to point out, the median progression-free survival is known, and it's 20.3 months. You know what it's not? It's not unknown, and it's not that all, among all the people who responded, not a single per person has progressed with two years of follow-up. That's a big difference. It's a big difference, and it's a big difference than imatinib. Let's talk about imatinib, which has been the truly transformative drug. This is a drug with a 98% complete response rate in a phase one clinical study where no one had recurrence. No one had. The duration of response was never was not reached um, on the order of years. And actually, I'm not sure if it's ever been reached to date. Um, so uh, that's, that's the difference here. 20 months. Okay. To answer the question of how well does a drug with this response rate predict survival gains, you need to know something about surrogate validation, about the entire surrogate literature. And I guess I would say I would start you with a couple of papers that we've done. A paper called The Strength of Surrogate Correlations that I published in 2015 in JAMA Internal Medicine. Follow-up paper in the European Journal of Cancer by Allison Haslam um, that looks at strength of correlations. And a paper by Chul Kim that appeared in Mayo Clinic Proceedings looking at the cancer drugs approved by the FDA based on a surrogate and the strength of those correlations. You need to know a little bit about trial-level validation, which is something I've talked about on this podcast before, but I won't talk about today. But let me just give you the two 
sort of facts right off the bat. One, the answer to this question, the first answer comes from Johnson Lancet Oncology 2006, which looked at all sort of clinical studies and asked, among drugs that improve response rate by 5%, 10%, 15%, what's the correlation between that and the subsequent improvement in overall survival in randomized control trials? And they have a scatter plot, which is shown in figure one, bottom panel. And it shows an R squared of 0.16 and a very shallow slope. What does this mean? This means that there is a positive relationship here. That's actually not surprising that drugs that generate response have, are slightly more likely to be drugs that improve survival. Okay, sure. I, I, I've always believed that and know that to be true and been very critical of drugs that are pursued for drug approval uh, in the absence of single agent response. Um, but the R squared is 0.16, which means only 16% of the variability in overall survival, in change in overall survival is explained by change in response. In other words, much of the difference in change in overall survival is not explained by change in response. That there is great uncertainty. It is not always the case that drugs that improve response rate go on to improve overall survival. There is massive uncertainty there. So that's piece of evidence one. Piece of evidence two, you might say, oh, that's 2006. That's an older study. Well, I encourage you to read the paper by Haslam because she has a number of more recent studies. But I just picked one that I think is the study that's favored by the FDA. This was published online February 9th, 2015. This is the Gidan Blumenthal paper in the JCL. And Gidan Blumenthal spends a great deal of ink in this paper telling you that response rate predicts progression-free survival, which is a really fascinating but entirely useless question because I don't care if one surrogate predicts another surrogate. I care if response rate predicts overall survival. And in fact, what he finds in that, in shown in figure three, panel A, the scatter plot, the R squared of all trials looking at the objective response rate odds ratio plotted against the OS hazard ratio, which is the right trial level validation. I'm not going to explain that on this episode. He finds the R squared is 0.09, meaning that just 9% of the variability in survival is explicable by improved response rate. What does this mean? Before I move on, I have to just make one more point about the FDA. The FDA does these surrogate validation analyses based on trials submitted to the FDA. That's a very deeply flawed metric. Uh, you can't validate a surrogate based on a selection bias convenience sample of things you have on your hand, which likely are the most favorable studies, uh, because that's what's being submitted to the FDA and not the very unfavorable studies. You need to do a literature review and ideally look in the gray literature and find some unpublished studies. And that's why I like the Johnson review, because it's much more comprehensive, 191 data points points versus, I don't know how many data points in this study, but I can count them with my eye. It looks like maybe 15 or 20. Um, okay, so the Gidon Blumenthal paper, though, also shows very poor correlation between response rate and overall survival. Okay, next question. What do we really care about here? We care about living longer and living better. Okay. What happened to these patients who got this drug? Well, as I told you, they had a median duration of a response of 20 months and a PFS of 18 months. What would have happened to these patients had they not gotten the drug? That's the next question. I think this is the key question. What happens to a patient with lung cancer who doesn't get the target therapy? Well, their median survival is, oh, let me stop you right there. Is that, that's not the right question. What happens to someone with RET fusion non-small cell lung cancer who does not get this drug and gets a cytotoxic drug? That's the question. That's the question. What is the answer to that question? Not a single person online sought to investigate the answer to that question. They didn't even try. They didn't even think that that was a relevant thing to ask or answer. They don't cite it. They don't mention it. They're not quoting it. Can you find the answer? Well, I found the answer. It's, it's not a great answer, 
but it's better than not having any idea at all, and it's much better than not asking a question. There's a paper by Alex Drillin and colleagues that appeared in the Annals of Oncology. It's called Clinical Outcomes with Pemetrexade-Based Systemic Therapies in Ret-Rearranged Lung Cancers. So this is asking, what happens to people, it's only 18 people, with ret-rearranged lung cancer who all got Pemetrexid-based therapy? So they're not getting Loxo, whatever it is, 192 or whatever. All right. Their median age is 63. Um, they're split between men and women. They're 100% adenocarcinoma. They're getting Pemetrexid, sometimes with a platinum, but sometimes as monotherapy. Uh, okay, so what's the answer? The objective response rate of Pemetrexid chemotherapy is 45% in this paper. And the median progression-free survival is, remember, it was 18 months with, uh, with the, the miracle game-changer home run revolution cure, Loxo-292. What is it with dirty old platinum Pemetrexid? And it is, median PFS is 19 months in this study. Okay, that's what happened in this study. Now, what would have happened to these people had they not gotten the drug? We really don't know because this is not a phase one clinical trial who is the, with a very strict enrollment. This is a retrospective review done in Memorial Sloan Kettering between 2007 and 2014. So if anything, you would actually think that these people are actually a little bit more sick on average than the people who enroll in a highly selected phase one. Okay, last question. Is that a parachute difference? So we at the outset have said randomized controlled trials are perfect for interventions with modest to marginal effect sizes. We also said randomized trials are not necessary for truly parachute interventions, things with like 90% absolute risk reduction on all-cause mortality. Is this a parachute difference? Well, 45% objective response rate versus 68% a median PFS that's in the 20-month ballpark. You know, you, you, I'm not doing a between-trial comparison. I'm not saying which is better. I'm just saying that they're roughly in the same ballpark. There is no way on planet Earth this is a parachute level difference. This is not a very durable response. It's 20 months. And this biology of tumor, as shown in this drilling paper, compared to RAS, has a much shorter PFS. If you have RAS mutations, you have a median PFS of six months. So you can't compare ret fusion lung cancer to all-comer lung cancer. That is a very misguided and foolish thing. You have to compare biomarker lung cancer to biomarker lung cancer. Uh, you can't let the outcomes of people with RAS, which is a much more common mutation, reduce the survival outcomes. So the bottom line here is there's no way, no reasonable person would think this is a parachute difference. It is not a parachute difference, and thus a randomized trial is necessary. And that doesn't mean I don't believe it won't win. Maybe it will win in the front line. I, I believe it will win PFS, but if there's crossover, then I, win, I bet it won't win OS. And if that is the result, then... One interpretation of that can be that it's okay to wait to give this therapy to second line as there is no improvement in OS for moving it all the way up front versus giving chemotherapy up front. I don't know what that'll show, of course. Maybe it'll show an OS benefit, uh, even with crossover. Maybe they won't be crossover and they'll find an OS benefit. But what I, what I want to say here is that this is not the kind of thing that you would omit a randomized controlled trial for. It would be different if it was 100% complete response rate and those responses had never been reached with four years of follow-up and people have no symptoms and they feel fine and they're all complete responses versus partial responses. That's another thing that might make it more likely to you know, believe that this is a tremendous benefit um, and that no one's experiencing the event of interest. And, and when you look back in the past, the people with RET fusion given Pemetrexid only had a six-month PFS and they all relapsed and OS was very short. Now, then, now you're talking that that's a big enough difference. But with the actual difference here between this historical study and what we've actually seen, the difference is not that great. Okay, what's my point here? My point is reasonable people can disagree about where exactly you draw the bar, uh, what constitutes a parachute level difference. But I think in general, the more you study the history of medicine, the more you want to be reluctant to say something should not be tested in a randomized trial because people just as 
confident as you said that, and they were wrong in many, many cases, from CAST, uh, which was another intervention, the cardiac antiarrhythmic suppression trial, the CAST study, which found fluconide increased mortality. The cardiologists of those days felt it was unethical to randomize because, of course, this is going to win. It's a parachute. People cry parachute left, right, and center. And here they're crying parachute again, ignorant of medical history. But worse in my mind, they're not really intelligently considering the question, which is when are randomized trials necessary? What do we know about these drugs? How well do those factors predict survival gains in empirical studies, not based on the four anecdotes of prior FDA-approved therapy? What do we really care about? What happened to these patients? What would have happened had they not gotten the drug? And is that a parachute-level difference? They're not going through the questions. This is, this is thinking 101. So everyone who's commenting that isn't outlining this form of thinking would fail. Um, this is my deepest concern with oncology as a profession. My deepest concern is that people who have a lot of technical knowledge about the molecular mechanisms of disease and how to interact with patients with cancer have very poor superficial knowledge of principles of evidence-based medicine and principles of, of reasoning through, through questions. And they are quick to go to the groupthink answer, to the answer that will please their corporate sponsors and overlords who pay them consulting fees. Um, and this is the problem. I would feel better about it. If, the, if we lived in a world free of financial conflict of interest, where I would assume that it was merely the ignorance doing the talking, and it wasn't that there was actually some untoward influence. But now I must worry that it is both ignorance and untoward influence, and that untoward influence encourages people to stay ignorant and to repeat the party line. And this is why I have very little respect for KOLs, because KOLs repeat the same thing, and they haven't analyzed it critically. And, and, I, and, I, and that said... If you analyze it in a thoughtful way and disagree, I would have much more respect, but that's not what I saw online. And in fact, you can read all these threads. It's, it's an embarrassment. And, and, and bottom line is, on this particular question, they're all wrong. The right answer is you do a randomized control trial. And in fact, let me read you what it says in the, in the article by Matt Herper. Lilly plans to file for approval with the Food and Drug Administration by the end of the year. The, because the FDA will grant accelerated approval to cancer drugs based only on tumor shrink, shrinkage, the study does not have a control group. Okay, great. Uh, later this year, Lilly will start a randomized trial that would compare cell percatinib to standard chemotherapy as the first-line treatment for non-small cell lung cancer with alterations in the gene it targets, which codes for an enzyme called rearranged during transfection or RET. Okay, and if you want to think about this topic even deeper, I want to refer you to a paper that I wrote with Emma Delory called The U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Use of Regular Approval for Cancer Drugs Based on Single-Arm Studies, Implications for Subsequent Evidence Generation that appeared in the Annals of Oncology. This points out, had the company sought a regular marketing authorization, there would be no further efficacy commitment, so they would not have this further randomized control trial. And it talks about the case of BRAF and Ross-1 regular approvals by the FDA and how many of the points I've made here, that those are those are endpoints with poor correlation with overall survival. And it goes through some of the additional concerns of not having confirmatory studies, which is one, we never really know the efficacy of the therapy. Two, another related question, which I didn't answer on this podcast, which is the response rate and duration of response you see in a phase one study, how does that relate to the response rate and the duration of response you see in a subsequent randomized phase three study? And how does it relate to the response rate and duration of response you see in the real world? Ah, million-dollar question. That's another question that should be included in my analysis package of how a thoughtful person would analyze this question. But this question, the answer, is under embargo. So maybe not today and maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life, I will give you the answer to this question on the podcast. And you won't want to miss that because that will help you shape your thinking here. Finally, without randomized control trials, the cost-effectiveness of therapy cannot be known. 
HTAs are tasked with making difficult decisions in European nations, and with single-arm uncontrolled data, they will be deprived of rigorous estimates of benefit, and they will be forced to make CEAs based on imperfect models, and that is a very dangerous situation. And what it will result in is that a nation is prioritizing, perhaps, some interventions over other interventions in an illogical, irrational way, counter to the mandate given to them by the people, and that is deeply problematic. And But that only applies to European nations, of course. So... These are considerations one would take into account when one thinks about this question in a logical, empirical manner. When? When are RCTs necessary? What do we know about this drug? How well do those factors predict survival gains? What do we really care about? What happened to these patients? What would have happened had they not gotten the drug? Is that a parachute difference? And what happens to response rate and duration of response to a drug from phase one to phase three? And that coming soon on a future plenary session when an embargoed paper is lifted and the author of that study comes on to discuss it here. But I hope you found this interesting because no matter what you come to conclude on this particular topic, you have to improve your thinking. That is the real take-home lesson here. I'm back in plenary session HQ for question of the week with Dr. Derek Tao. Derek Tao is an internal medicine resident. He's a second year resident and he's been a frequent guest on this podcast. Derek, it's great to have you here in plenary session HQ. Thanks for having me back. You go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had, Derek. <laughs> In what sense? <laughs> that's that's my answer to what you told me just before we came on air. Oh, I see, yeah. I don't know if I'm the best man for this job. That's what Derek told me, and I said, you go to war with the army you have, not the <laughs> army you wish you had. But I think I disagree with Derek Tao. Derek Tao is a very smart resident. He's excellent. He's a modest man, and I think he's going to do a great job. So, on question of the week, this time, it's mix-up time, isn't it? Uh, Mixap inspired time. Ah, well put. Mixap inspired. Inspired by the MKSAP. What does the MKSAP stand for, Derek? Uh, medical knowledge, something or other. I think self assessment program. Oh yeah. Medical knowledge self assessment program. Oh for one on the Mixap. <laughs> it's already started a rough start. Well, and the Mixap is the only way to prepare for the internal medicine residency board examination. I, I just want you. To, I just want the record to state that I am board certified in internal medicine. Because a few years ago, I was able to answer the questions correctly. But I don't know if that's going to be true today. Yeah, well, you, you'll have to recertify. Uh, you don't ha I don't think you have to recertify as an oncologist, but I think it's a point of professional pride among some. Mm. But I think many people let it go. They let it lapse, and they keep only their specialty certification. Well, enough about certifications. That's boring stuff. Who knows? By the time we get there, it'll all be different. But... These are the questions they want you to know. All right. Where do we start? Just take us through it, Derek. What's the question? <clears throat> sure. Oh. First question. You have a 21-year-old man. He's admitted for subacute onset bilateral lower extremity paraplegia, mm. urinary incontinence, and sensory deficits. And this was preceded by several days of flu-like symptoms. His initial treatment in the hospital has been five days of high-dose IV methylprednisolone. And several days later, he's not improved at all. He's had no clinical improvement. On exam, his uh, vital signs are normal. His strength is zero out of five in both legs. Oh dear. Otherwise normal uh, in the upper extremities. His reflexes are absent in the lower extremities and he has some moderate sensory loss below T3 on both sides. Um, you have CSF data, um, no erythrocytes, leukocyte count of 30 with lymphocyte predominance. Mm -hmm. His glucose is normal, his protein is 62, um, and you have a MRI as well of the T-spine, 
that shows hyperintensity in the thoracic cord at T2 with peripheral contrast enhancement. An MRI of the brain is normal. So the question is, which of the following is the most appropriate next step in treatment for him? A, plasma exchange therapy. B, IVIG. C, uh, inpatient rehab only. D, anti-TB drug regimen. Hmm. Well, I guess I see. They're trying to get you to figure out one, what, what does this person have? So this is a person who has basically paralysis of the lower extremities, who recently had a viral syndrome, who uh, has a bunch of other things that are clues. One, they have absent lower extremity reflexes. They're not hyper-reflexive on the lower extremity. Two, the CSF has a lymphocyte predominance. Three, they give you the MRI finding, which shows, what exactly did it say again? Oh, the MRI of the T-spine with an, uh, hyper-intensity. Hyper-intensity. So they're giving at you... At a level as they're, well. Yeah. yeah, at that level. So they're giving you a bunch of things that I think point you in the direction of transverse myelitis. Mm-hmm. That's the diagnosis. So transverse myelitis, uh, uh, a neurologic phenomenon that often occurs after a recent infection or, or often respiratory infection. Um, and, and the question is, this person is not getting better with steroids. So what do you do? And the choices were what? So plasma exchange, IVIG, rehab, or treat for TB. Mm, I see. I know the answer because as a hematologist in this hospital, we control we control the answer. We are the ones, we're the gatekeepers for the answer, and so we are often summoned to provide the answer. Mm-hmm. But then I've also looked into the data for the answer, and I'm not too happy about that. So tell us what the answer is, Derek Tao. So they're recommending plasma exchange. Plasma so. exchange. The, the great plasma exchange. Plasma exchange is useful in a few conditions. You know what they are, Derek. What do we plasma exchange our patients? Uh, TTP. TTP, based on that Canadian randomized trial that's very, very old. Yeah, I'm struggling to come up with other ones. Right yeah, now. and this, I think, is the other main <laughs> really? indication. Yeah, or very bad myasthenic crisis. I mm-hmm. think sometimes they ask a plasma exchange, or they ask us to plasma exchange in transverse myelitis that's unresponsive to corticosteroids. So that's the answer to the question of the week. What do we need to, what do we need to know? Well, <clears throat> I think... Getting to idiopathic transverse myelitis is helpful. That helps you rule out a couple options. With mm, the, the TB, TB testing, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Um, ultimately, you know, an inflammatory and demyelinating myelopathy, uh, you get the inflammation on the CSF, and you're ruling out a lot of other causes with the otherwise normal brain MRI and the, the T-spine um, MRI just showing that hyperintensity. Right. So their whole learning point is that um, if they've refractory to uh, glucocorticoids, in this case, he didn't get any better with the methylprednisolone. The next step they recommend is the plasma exchange. Um, they don't really comment on the evidence, but they do point you in the right direction of their references. Uh-huh. Uh, it seems like you've said it's it's based on pretty modest data. What did you What did you dig up there? Let's see. So there was like a neurology. Re- um, uh, systematic review, yeah, and they said that plasma exchange. That the recommendation there is really based on a single class two um, study that they have. Nineteen ninety nine randomized trial. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and a bunch of uh, retrospective studies. Yes. Retrospective, yeah. which is GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> Derek, garbage in, garbage out. Systematic review of GIGO. Yeah, but this this nineteen ninety nine study. So you saw it before. It said. Um, it was a crossover study. It was sham controlled as well. Mm-hmm. So, randomized sham control, mm-hmm. double mass study um, of plasma exchange. 
and they showed a moderate improvement. So eight of 19 or 42 percent uh, on the active treatment improved compared to one out of 17 or 5.9 percent in the sham treatment. Hmm. I guess the reason I didn't like this study, and I don't recall it 100%, but when I looked at it once a while back, the reason I didn't like it was the sample size is like pitifully small. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to tell me what it is in a minute. The actual number of people who randomized is smaller than the sample size. It was like a subset of the sample size. What was the sample size? Um, I guess it was 36. 36. Okay. So then you start, 36 is all the people going to the study. So I think that each arm had something like, you know, the teens kind of thing. And then they crossed everyone over after a few, after a few days. And basically, if you got plasma exchange up front, a few people responded, meaning they got a little bit better, and a bunch of people didn't get better. If you had the sham plasma exchange, then I'm not sure if anyone got better. Then they crossed everyone over and like a couple people got better in the sham arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they followed people out a little bit and a lot of people relapsed even if they had initially gotten better. Yeah, there was relapse as well. <clears throat> so I don't know. At the end of the day, I was, I am kind of left clueless as to, um, you know, one, is this durable? Two, what's the effect size? Three, does it actually make people better off? Uh, uh, I have a lot of open questions. And four, what would happen if you just had a really robust randomized trial with 100 people in each arm? But alas, it's not my field of interest. It's a neurology. It's really a neurology question, isn't it? Why is it on the internal medicine boards? We have to know neurology as well. You have to rotate through some some number of weeks of neurology as what well. What do you need to training. know that for, Derek? Didn't you, you rotate through this? As I did. I did rotate <laughs> through it. But I'm just saying, I'm, now I'm asking, what do you need to know it for? Are you ever plasma exchange someone for transverse myelitis? I have not, no. I have not either. Yeah. Well, I, I have, actually, because I'm a hematologist who's in charge of that, and thus I get asked to do it, but mm-hmm. I'm, not the, I'm not in the driver's seat. I'm a passenger. Mm-hmm. All right. Any other thoughts on this question, Derek Tao? I guess to expose my own ignorance, um, I was tempted by the IVIG option, too, just yeah. not having a lot of experience. And sometimes it's hard for me to kind of understand... I mean, based on their mechanisms of how those two therapies work, Plex or IVIG. Like, why wouldn't it like be IVIG? They could sometimes both be uh, indicated. Utilized, yeah. yeah. Let's take a pause. Okay. Well, you asked a good question because you exposed my ignorance as well, Derek Tao, which is a question about IVIG. Well, I just took a brief Google search, and what I find is that, in fact, in the in the UK, they had the greatest ambition ever, a multi-center, single-blind, parallel group randomized trial of IVIG plus corticosteroids versus corticosteroids alone in transverse myelitis for patients over the age of one within a recruitment estimated to be 85 participants per arm. So this is a perfect study, hmm. and it will answer your question. And the answer is, drum roll please. 26 participants were screened and two were randomized into the study. With this limited sample size, treatment effect could not be determined. So this is very sad to see that there is no answer to this question because the sole randomized trial could only randomize two people. That's, it, not, that's not really quite ha- a randomized trial. Did you say 85 participants or something early on? They wanted to have 85 oh, per wanted. arm. And then they screened night 26 and randomized two. I see. Randomizing mm. two. Uh, if the sample size, if you can run a randomized trial in your own immediate family, uh, I think that's probably a little bit uh, too few participants. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess the answer to that question is data is still lacking. Yeah, and with the, that 1999 study we did talk about with plasma exchange, mm-hmm. it's interesting that they chose to crossover, isn't it? I, yeah. I, know, I feel like you and Emerson Chen have talked about this before, but seems like 
I don't really see the the reason for that unless it was they already believe it's going to work. I know. guess I'd say I mean we we think a lot about crossover in the oncology space, which I think is different. And my feelings on crossover are um, you don't want it when you are showing the fundamental efficacy of an anti-cancer drug, and you do want it when a drug has already proven value in a subsequent line of therapy. And your question is whether or not the routine upfront administration is better than the subsequent administration of it. So in some cases you do really desperately want it, and in some cases you don't want it at all. Um, and the classic example where you don't want it all was like that drug Provenge, which had crossover that it actually muddied the water and made that really a useless study. Uh, and I think uh, arguably this is a condition that you probably wouldn't want it because you really have never proven the fundamental efficacy of Plex in this condition. There is only that one study that's really small. You want to randomize a sufficient number of people to detect a real difference. Mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't done a power calculation, but I suspect you're talking about close to 100 people per arm. Mm-hmm. And then follow people out a few weeks later to see how many people get better and how many people is it just a transient getting better and how many people actually get better in the long term which is what you really care about what is the you know three month outcomes like in that condition mm-hmm. uh, because of course it's not just about the immediacy of it it's also you know what, what what does it take to get these people literally quite literally back on their feet and quite literally you know back to doing what they want to do are you more like ethically obligated to to cross over if there's no if this is like the last line or if this is there's no other kind of uh, known treatment? That's a good question. I believe the answer to that question is no, because I think the, the, the core ethical principle, this is, I mean, I'm giving you my view of this. We wrote a paper called The Ethics of Crossover with myself and Christine Grady, who's the head of bioethics at the NIH a few years ago. And our paper argued that to do any clinical trial, to do any clinical trial, the most fundamental prerequisite for the trial to be ethical is you have to be able to answer a question that matters to people. If you randomize people or enroll subjects and you're incapable of answering a useful clinical question or useful question at all, your trial is fundamentally unethical. So simply because you don't have other options, simply because a condition is dire, simply because you have a lot of high hopes that a treatment will work, that's not a reason to insert crossover, particularly if crossover will mean your study results are essentially uninterpretable and can no longer answer an important clinical question. So the philosophy that kind of it was a paper by Allison Haslam and I on crossover, we argue is you want crossover where it is answering the question that's ethical and right, which is I already know this drug works in the third line of cancer. Is it better to use it first line or third line? And many of those trials, of course, the company's incentive is to like prevent the control arm from getting access to the medication by conducting in in certain third world countries um, where they may not have access to the medication. So of course, it'll look like it's better in the front line, but you haven't asked that question of, do you need to give it right off the bat or not? In contrast, if you have something that's hitherto unproven, like that cancer vaccine by Dendrion, um, you cross people over, you you in this in that particular case the placebo arm of that trial they got less docetaxel down the road and they got it uh, after a delay um, and so you might have even harmed them from delaying appropriate standard of care in this particular case i have sympathy i don't think it sounds like a great condition and the few times i've seen transverse myelitis it's certainly not that great um, and i think you want to try stuff uh, but there is um, a, a deep thing that's lost when you run a trial that's incapable of answering the question because hypothetically let's say we run a hundred person randomized trial and we found that turned out five people improved in the transverse myelitis arm maybe two people improved in the placebo arm by chance alone and but we followed them out and six at the six weeks mark they're absolutely indistinguishable well then what you've actually learned is we don't need to exchange 
plasma, human plasma, connecting someone up to a machine and putting them through this arduous process that's costly and that uses a lot of donor drive plasma that's not going to change outcomes at six weeks. Like you've saved the system and you've saved society and people with this condition a lot of grief. I mean, I don't want to be plasma exchanged just for giggles. I mean, I want it to work and I want to know if it works. Mm -hmm. That's just my take. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on Question of the Week, Derek Tao. Thanks for having me. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Adam Duvall. Adam is a fellow here at OHSU who's a fellow in both adult and pediatric hematology oncology. He's one of these rare breeds, the MedPeds hybrid. Dr. Duvall did his medical school at the Case Western University uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. He went on to do MedPeds at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and he came to us several years ago. Was it maybe two, three years ago, was it? Three years ago? Three years ago now, almost almost four. Almost four. Three years ago, Adam Duvall came and became our fellow, and he was in the hybrid program, so we share that between pediatrics and adult oncology, and he has developed a particular focus right there at the intersection in adolescent young adult oncology. Adam, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me here in your beautiful plenary session HQ. In the HQ. Yeah. So smaller than I wished it were. I wish it was a bigger <laughs> HQ. At but least it, you have a window. At least I have a window to which to, to, to look out on this Oh, look at that. It's another sunny day here in Portland, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> look at that sunshine. Yeah. Well, Adam, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me, and I appreciate it. Now, you've listened to plenary sessions here and there, and then you and I were talking recently, and you made the point that it would be great to get somebody on the podcast to flesh out um, what is adolescent young adult oncology, what are the considerations that go into it, and to kind of expose listeners to this, I think, emerging field of oncology that um, that they may not know about. So I really appreciate you coming on to talk about it. I think uh, I think it's an interesting thing, and I appreciate you taking the time for it because it's it is something that's kind of burgeoning. That's um, you know coming more and more to the forefront as we learn more about the biology of a lot of these cancers as the biology seems different but I think mm -hmm. more importantly actually the psychosocial and the kind of developmental impact about getting cancer at this time period is very different that's that's something I want to unpack with you so I guess I'd say that um, this is this is truly something that you would consider distinct from I think classic pediatric oncology as well as classic adult oncology it's a group of people who often are in the puberty or post-pubescent years um, who might have a different outlook on things, might have even different biology for certain tumor types. Is that fair to say? Yeah, for certain tumor types, there's certainly a different biology that we're understanding more and more about. Um, but I think kind of getting back to what, you're, what you were saying before is that the developmental time frame is really different. And I think, um, you know, there is a little bit of a, a lack of home for these patients. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't quite fit in the pediatric world and they don't quite fit in the adult world. And to be perfectly honest with you, a lot of the providers in the pediatric or the adult world aren't as comfortable taking care of this demographic. And, and that is because they are a relatively small proportion of what you would see normally in, in cancer. You know, it's not, especially in adult oncology, it's not the, the usual patient population. You, you don't see a lot of young people, which is, which is okay, but um, they're still around and they're still more numerous than what we think. Mm -hmm. And if, if a patient in this age group were to develop a cancer, 
are the types of tumors encountered in different frequency than in the adult population? Are there certain tumor types that are disproportionately represented here? There are. Um, so uh, germ cell tumors, so testicular cancer is mm. most common in this age range. Mm-hmm. A lot of thyroid cancers are becoming more common. Um, the m- interesting thing is, is that um, it's not my area of expertise, but um, the most common uh, like increase or the the increase in, in the more common cancers are actually breast and GI cancers mm. so more and more adolescents young adults are getting breast and GI cancers which a lot of people theorize could be due to any number of things but then leukemia lymphomas and sarcomas are really the kind of bread and butter of it so the people who are getting chemotherapy who are requiring these intensive treatments and things like that you can lump into kind of two groups yeah. into you know the solid tumors which would be sarcoma and testicular cancer and then um, kind of liquid tumors like lymphoma and leukemia. And is it fair to say that the AYA population outcomes of leukemia have lagged behind the gains that have been made in the pediatric population? Is that fair to say? Absolutely. So there, we'll talk about some more studies here in, in, in a little bit, but um, there are some like very landmark studies in this population that showed that AYAs who were treated on a uh, in a pediatric hospital by pediatric providers actually had increased survival. Mm-hmm. Now, there's lots of theories about why that is, because the protocols are different, supportive care is different, everything is different. I mean, having been a truly a pediatric provider and an adult provider, I can see the differences between the two. Um, But uh, the the survival has not gained as much as what was seen in in a lot of the younger ALL patients specifically. Now tell me, what are the differences between pediatric hematology oncology and adult hematology oncology? We could do two hours on that. Really? Uh, They're incredibly different. So there's just obviously there's fewer patients in pediatric hemonc, so you're not seeing as many patients a day. You you don't have those demands. Um, you have I feel like the doctors at least where I've worked in the a few centers I have, are more um, kind of responsible for a lot of the minutia. Whereas we have on the adult side have really great incredible coordinators that take a lot of things for us, which uh-huh. allow us to see more patients, and aren't as responsible for that minutia. We we kind of rely on our patients to to make sure. That that they're following up appropriately, that they're um, taking some impetus on their, their own, which I think is actually a good thing. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that needs to be adopted more on the pediatric side to a certain extent. Um, but really, you know, there there's a lot more hand-holding on the pediatric side. There's a lot more oversight, a lot more paternalism, which I think is also good in a different way. Um, but there has to be some sort of balance. Now, what that balance is, I don't know. But um, that's just kind of on the, the social side. Um, there are a lot of specific differences um, with, you know, what we give outpatient therapy versus inpatient therapy. Um, there's differences in what actual chemo is given. So if you are AML, I had a patient with AML who was diagnosed at 17, turned 18 during her therapy. She got a completely different regimen than she would have if she was 18 and treated on the adult side. Mm. Completely different, you know, not the normal 7 plus 3. There's there's different regimens on the pediatric side. And whether or not that's the right thing to do, we don't actually have comparisons like, we, like we do in some other cancers. Um, the And then there are some other areas where, um, you know, because there are more people, like um, in testicular cancer, is there's not as much more active research going on as far as treatment um, differences because... A lot of those studies have already been done in adult populations and not as much in the pediatric side. I see. But when it comes to the sort of the classic principles of oncology and dose reductions, giving drugs, 
Do you see differences there too? Or in the you way push it, doses a lot more on the pediatric side, and mm-hmm. they tolerate it a lot more. So that's something I was actually in a discussion with or argument with, <laughs> whatever you want to say, mm-hmm. with one of our adult providers not too long ago. Is that he was saying, well, you know, this it was a, about a, like thirty year old or something like that. He's saying, well, you know, he'll he's a kid, he'll tolerate it much better. I'm like, no, actually, like a difference even between a thirty year old and a ten year old, difference between a ten year old and a fifteen year old. And anecdotally, at least, they seem to tolerate things much differently. So you're saying a ten year old will tolerate chemotherapy better than a 15 year old oh, absolutely mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. the kids seem to tolerate chemotherapy incredibly well um mm-hmm. and that's why you're able to push all these doses one of the kind of old um held beliefs that i think is relatively true is that you know pediatricians give a lot more chemo for cancers than than adult providers do and i think in part of that is because kids seem to tolerate it much better do you feel that any of it is due to the fact that in the pediatric world the person receiving the treatment and the person consenting is a different person. It's the parent, not the child. Does that play a role? I think that certainly does in a lot of ways as far as kind of navigating those treatment decisions, um, especially later on down the lines. Mm -hmm. And And I think that's something that you know, we may not do as well in the pediatric world when we have patients who are cognizant, who are coherent and able to have these complex discussions. There's a there's a lot of um, kind of good social studies in the pediatric world that talks about how, you know, kind of these patients who are younger but still able to know what's going on, you know, they're not they're not stupid. They, they know exactly what's going on, mm-hmm. that they'll know long before their parents that they're going to die effectively or that they have a terminal illness, that, oh that it really is something that um, they're aware of and they're kind of have accepted and a lot of the times it's a almost a, a burden off of them when their parents can talk to them about it and things like that the, the, so, the child protects the parent from the information absolutely so the child i mean these children are pretty incredible which is one of the reasons why i in, enjoy practicing in pediatrics but they are are just trying to protect the parent as much as the parent is pro- trying to protect them um and so it, i think it bring getting back to your point i think it brings up different um, challenges because you're trying to work with a patient who you want to do what they wish and the parents really do want to do what they wish as well um, but at the same time they they have to do what they think is best for the kid um, so I think it brings up different challenges I'm not so sure if it's you know easier better or worse anything I think it's just different are there ever situations where for instance you have a 12 year old who may be very present and very aware of what's going on and they may have certain desires but then their parents may have different desires. Um, and navigating that as a doctor, if the, if the person, if the child is telling you, I want to do whatever, X, and the parent is saying, no, 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 let's do Y. I think that certainly happens, not as frequently as what you may imagine, but that certainly happens. We have incredible teams on the pediatric side, too. Who, I mean, this is what they do. Our palliative care teams aren't just for end-of-life issues. Mm-hmm. They're um, involved a lot, of, a lot of the times earlier than in what we might necessarily involve them on the adult side and that's because they help with a lot of these discussions and we have wonderful social workers who really get to know the kids and the families who are incredibly adept at um you know teasing out and kind of the different kinds of yeah. things. Mm-hmm. And so there certainly are those difficulties. Um, and there's, you know, there's difficulties between parents, right? So, oh. um, I mean, sometimes the parents don't see eye to eye and, you know, navigating that is, is also difficult. But then, I mean, you've, I'm sure you've encountered navigating it between two siblings yes. yeah, you or, know, spouses. or spouses yeah, yeah, or, yeah, or yeah. kids of the th- thing. And yeah, so it's, yeah. it's the same type of dynamic, yeah. Yeah, but it's just, it's just different. Hmm. And then I guess the last thing I'd ask you before we jump into, you know, what you want to talk about is um, sometimes 
all oncologists get asked the question of, you know, um, how do you as a provider um, deal emotionally with the job? And often that question is asked because the sort of tacit belief is that there's got to be a lot of death and dying. There's got to be a lot of tough situations you encounter as a physician. How do you cope? How do you deal with that? And I guess as an oncologist who's been asked that question many times, I think many of us, myself included, we often kind of, sometimes part of it, it takes us aback a little bit because we all work with conditions where they're often very high cure rates. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether you see early breast cancer, early colon cancer, whether you see um, many lymphomas that, as you know, have high cure rates. So we all have these kind of um, subsets of our practice that may be very high cure rates, so that kind of, um, for which this may not apply. Um, but there is, of course, I think that aspect of all fields of oncology where you do take care of people who are very, very ill and may pass away. And I think we all sort of come to our own um, way in which we manage being close to someone, being there for someone, caring about someone, keeping, I think, a little bit of emotional space so that we are also objective and we can take care of them. And we grieve too, I think, as a doctor, mm -hmm. of course, uh, but I don't know if we'll grieve the same way we grieve for somebody in our family, for instance, um, in part because I think you might become an ineffective physician if you got that close. Um, but I wanted to ask you, but as a pediatric hematologist oncologist, I would imagine that some of this stuff might be very difficult as at, for, for you, the person, to be there, to bear witness. How do you deal with it? How do you cope? I, th I think it is, but I, I think part of what you said earlier, too, though, is, is really important, is that having still a certain boundary so that you can still practice medicine, still give them, you know, sound advice, because that's what they're there for. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that I do is I try to look at every situation that I, I made the situation better, whether it be, you know, treating that patient and helping them, you know, with um, standard risk ALL, we have cure rates, you know, over 90%, over right. 95%. So, you know, I'm, me as a doctor, I'm not going to make any difference in that situation from a medical side, right? We have these protocols. We do the protocol. Right. We already know that based on certain things, we'll adjust the protocol. It's really, it's kind of mindless in a lot of ways. I'm not going to have any skill that's going to make that better. But what I can do is make that journey through that therapy for a kid who, you know, this might be his only real experience with medicine, um, make that better for them. And But it's the same for, you know, a patient who had, who dies during therapy or shortly thereafter. Um, I've certainly had those in who have been either young or old and um and it really is just trying to make that part better as well whether it be for the patient whether it be for the family afterwards or um kind of anywhere in between and i feel like if i was able to do that um then i was able to contribute something to that patient's care that was not able to be given to them by another another person necessarily That's well put you know and in fact that now that you say that i mean it's a lot of how i feel which yeah. is that you know you think more about whether or not you did all the things you could have done, the mm -hmm. best way you could have done in the moment, knowing what you yeah. knew then. And if you feel like you did all those things well and you were able to help somebody in whatever small way, that that's still worth something. And that's why I'm really drawn to adolescent and adult oncology yeah. or AYA oncology is because I don't feel like I'm a particularly smart individual. You yeah. know, I'm not, I'm not going Listeners to... Listeners may dis dispute yeah. this, but go yeah, on. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm not going... I don't feel like my strengths are in my ability to think differently than everybody else to the point where I'm going to come up with some novel cure for cancer or something like that you know I think my strengths are lie in um, helping people and being with people in the moment and and getting them through difficult times and if you look at the literature for AYA oncology there's a lot of um, impact and lifelong impact that happens to people who get cancer during this and that goes from a psychosocial impact uh, you know these people are um, are these young people are trying to get either through high school college or just starting up in a job and and effects during that time impact their ability to work productively 
relatively for mm-hmm. the rest of their lives. And mm-hmm. but then also these these people are undergoing like significant psychosexual development, right? So mm-hmm. we don't really talk about sex in oncology, but it's actually a, a huge component of you know young people's lives that can be affected dramatically for the rest of their lives, and that can actually impact their relationships. That can impact they have lower rates of marriage, um, and then on the more practical side, fertility it can impact too. So a lot of these people are in the point where they would either be actively having um, children or creating families or are at the point where they would start thinking about that and we are potentially offering them a cure for their disease but a cure that might make it so that they can't have those plans or make those dreams possible anymore of having you know biologic children and things like that so so it's a lot of added considerations so it's a lot of added considerations and it's a lot of things that um, for better or worse don't get um, reimbursed I guess Mm. you could say that's something as I'm looking for a job out there now it's thinking about what do I bring to the field that is different and unfortunately you know a lot of it is is what can you what reimbursable skill can you bring to hospitals or Sad, departments true, yeah. um, and, and none of these are reimbursable <laughs> mm. me talking to patients about you know their relationships or sexual health or fertility or things like that is is not gonna is gonna not gonna make anybody money but I just I feel so strongly that it's an important uh, piece to, to address with these young people from the beginning and, and through the end and in studies looking at AYA patients they actually agree with it so like in a lot of survivorship studies uh, people will be asked if they were if any of these kind of um, non-medical concerns were addressed in the beginning a lot of the times you know 30% or lower they weren't and then they'll ask again if the patient felt like that should have been done and almost universally every patient thinks that we should be talking about Mm -hmm. um, fertility preservation and relationship and economics and school and social and all of these things that I think we all should be but um, it's difficult to find time for and that's so well said and i think there's just a lot there to to kind of think about and we'll be back with more of the interview but first let's take a break for a question of the week i'm back with dr sven olsen for question of the week hematology oncology boards edition sven it's great to have you back in the studio great to be back i'm waiting for your your comments on my clothing items this week unfortunately we have recorded multiple (laughs) episodes in a row so i've already mocked you for your inappropriate yes. <laughs> uh, shoes in a prior episode of question of the week and I can only unless you're willing to get changed in between episodes and tapings it would be hard to, to identify make it real, yeah yeah to really to really give that you know it's like jeopardy i think in jeopardy they record many episodes in a row and then they air them sequentially oh and they have outfit changes yeah i think they have to make them change otherwise oh, they'll man. look like yeah they're okay. wearing the same clothes next time yeah all right so what do you got for us this time okay this is a juicy one so 32 year old patient develops rectal bleeding and iron deficiency anemia, get a colonoscopy, and it identifies a non-obstructive mass in the ascending colon. The biopsy confirms a moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma, and he has a CT for staging that also shows uh, intra-abdominal adenopathy, but no distant metastases. So the patient's estranged from her family and can't recall any family history of colon cancer. So the question is, which test would confirm or rule out the presence of a hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer syndrome, or HNPCC, or Lynch syndrome, in this patient? Those A, analysis of microsatellite instability in tumor tissue by PCR. B, BRAF mutation analysis and methylation status of the promoter region of genes encoding mismatch repair enzymes. C, analysis of microsatellite instability in non-tumor tissue or D, sequencing of the APC, or adenomatous polyposis colon, gene 
in non-tumor tissue. Hmm. Okay. So you started us off with rectal bleeding and iron deficiency anemia. I thought you were going classical hematologist on me. I thought that's where you're driving this. this but is, oh, you know how many of these? Oh, we, I have actually caught a few of these in uh, benign hematology classical. clinic. Class, oh, thank you. Cut that part out. That part's going in there. It's going uh, in there, you documented error. Okay. Uh, I've caught a few of these in Freudian Dr. Tom slip. Delory's clinic. Mm -hmm. uh, they come in with iron deficiency, a young person, and that's what happens. And what, you recommend colonoscopy and EGD? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If it's a male, always. Mm. And if it's a woman, uh, it's based on menstrual history, but then I think that could be a culprit. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So um, you have a moderately different adenocarcinoma. This person's very, very young, and obviously that raises the question of sort of a familial thing. Um, which test rules in or out HNPCC uh, or the Lynch syndrome? Okay. Option one. Uh, I'll just say the options real quick, and then I'll tell you what I think. Option one, analysis of microsatellite instability in the tumor. Option two, BRAF mutation analysis and methylation status of the promoter region of genes encoding mismatch repair enzymes. Option C, analysis of microsatellite instability in non-tumor tissue. Option D, sequencing of the APC gene in non-tumor tissue. Okay. So option one, microsatellite instability in the tumor uh, is not going to help you because you want to know whether or not this is a germline defect and you will find that there is in fact microsatellite instable uh, colorectal cancer that is also sporadic and, and just and just occurs by, by chance alone. Option D is not going to help you because sequencing APC is the causative gene for familial adenomatous polyposis, uh, the familial colon cancer syndrome, uh, which has a very different and classic boards question, which is they're going to show you the colon splayed open. You're going to see this like polyps everywhere. <laughs> probably the same photo in every textbook. In every textbook. Yeah, that's probably what they're going to get to you on the boards. Um, and that's really slightly different um, pathogenesis than the mismatch repair. Um, the the um, BREF mutation analysis and methylation status of the promoter regions of genes encoding mismatch repair enzymes, that's not going to clinch it for you either. You're going to need uh, to get the microsatellite instability in germline tissue to prove that this person carries a, a germline uh, HNPCC um, uh, defect. What's the answer? Correct. You are correct. It is option C. You analyze microsatellite instability in non-tumor tissue. And I think uh, this one I almost got tripped up on because you have to separate what the normal sequence of analysis would be. Yes, right. From what they're asking in this question. Right. What they're asking is how do you confirm or rule out the presence of hereditary? So you have to skip ahead a few steps from the normal kind of diagnostic tree that you see in all over the, the literature. So essentially, you know, we're looking for as either when you when you start the diagnostic algorithm, let's say separate from this question you would test the tumor itself first. You would test the tumor for either microsatellite instability or immunohistochemistry for the mismatch repair proteins. And right. And, I, and if you didn't have that, you wouldn't be going down the Lynch syndrome pathway. Then you'd right. be done. You'd be done, right, yeah. Because if you had it uh, in germline, you would have it in the tumor. Right. Um, and I tried to find, you know, recommendations for whether to do immunohistochemistry or MSI first, and there really isn't a consensus. It no, just says not. either or. Yeah. I did find uh, evidence that immunohistochemistry can miss some mutations uh, that are non-functional but still immunogenic enough to be picked up by immunohistochemistry. Or by PCR, you mean? By immunohistochemistry. Oh, okay. So you pick it up with, uh, you know, immunoblot and uh -huh. uh, antibodies, but non-functional. So I see. It seems to me that MSI is what we do most common here. Which is what? The PCR test? Or a PCR test, yeah. correct. Um, so you start with that. Now, if either MSI or immunohistochemistry in the tumor is abnormal, then it seems the next step is to 
look at which of the specific mismatch repair proteins are in fact mutated. Okay. So then the further management or diagnostics depends on that. So if you have uh, MLH1 mutation, then that seems to suggest or would push you towards looking for somatic um, alterations in your mismatch repair proteins. Okay, MLH, okay. Right, so MLH1, mm -hmm. in that case, if that is mutated, then you look for BRF mutation analysis and methylation status of the promoter region of MLH1 because that seems to be the predominant genotype or genotypic alteration in someone with sporadic, so, yes, so, right. so-called sporadic, sporadic kind of Lynch syndrome. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and, and that gets you to the option three, um, that B, or option two was it? Yeah, the BRF was like the second option of the answer key. Um, if they're MLH1, that's a diagnostic tree. Okay. Right. And they okay. tend to be, you know, it's not uh, causally linked, but BRF, or BRF mutations tend to be associated. Okay. So a, a cheaper or kind of a, a poor man's way to do it is check for BRF. And if it's mutated, that might suggest you have an actual promoter region mutation. Mm, okay. But as far as I've seen, both are occurring simultaneously when you test for that. Okay. Now what about the other mismatch repair proteins? So if anything other than MLH1 is mutated, then you go down the pathway of doing germline testing. Okay. And in that case, you do non-tumor tissue of doing just the mismatch repair immunohistochemistry. Mm-hmm. I see. And that's where we're going right away with the answer to this question, but I that's only because they're specifically asking... To cinch the diagnosis right. of Lynch syndrome right off the bat. Right. They're not asking you to be a prudent oncologist, God forbid. Yes. So I think that's interesting. Okay, now the, the side thing that it raises is, you know, when you think about pembrolizumab in your tissue agnostic approvals, you know, based on MSI status uh, in the VA, are you using uh, the, P the PCR assay, the immunohistochemistry, or are you doing both? Because I've heard some people say that you need both so you don't miss anything. Well, I mean, the FDA label will say MSI. I. I thought it says either or. I thought it said MSI, All right, let's microsatellite instability. Okay, so I think the FDA drug label says MSI high or mismatch repair deficient, so it gives you both options. I will defend my answer by okay. saying that yeah. there was a study, yeah. or there have been multiple studies saying, mm -hmm. and one I'm citing is by Bartley et al., 11% mm -hmm. uh, of tumors that were MSI high had normal mismatch repair immunohistochemistry and that is because of the thing I mentioned where you can have situations where the protein is not functional or has missense or frame shift mutations so it's non-functional but it's still able to be picked up by the immunohistochemistry as right. normal. I see. But what about um, the converse? Is it ever the case that um, you have IHC picks it up but the PCR doesn't? Much rarer I and see. that's because the immunohistochemistry also requires a little more um, expertise as far as performing the assay mm -hmm. PCR is pretty universally performed and right. you know has less variability so I mean I would argue that if your MSI is normal then the chance of having a you know MMR immunohistochemistry alteration is low but if you were really backed into a, a corner and had no other options would but I check it if MSI was normal like you were going to go to a Pembro dinner in like the next day or so oh yeah yeah okay I already ran it Okay. Well, I see what you're saying. Okay. So, so I think that's a very good way to think about it and a good logical argument for running the PCR first. Okay. So back to this question, any other pearls here? You, 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 I think you did a nice job taking us through that diagnostic thinking. Um, let me ask you this. You have a, um, patient, uh, with colon cancer. They have stage three disease, um, but they're MSI high. What adjuvant therapy are you going to give them? Well, the argument is that, and this mostly comes up for stage two, is uh, MSI high tumors actually tend to do worse 
potentially worse with standard kind of adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, so in that case, it's sometimes used as a little argument not to do it. Although I'd argue that for stage two colon cancer, the majority of the time, I would not do it. Yeah, I know. That's the other problem. Like, but so that's not for stage bad, three, yeah. I think regardless of MSI status, there would be an indication for doing adjuvant chemotherapy. Good. I didn't trick you. All yeah. right. So I would say there's one more pearl to this and they kind of get around it because they immediately say they're going to be testing for Lynch syndrome in this patient. But I think it, this also, you know, this will come up on, I think ever, I will hazard a guess that this will come up on my own board exam are what are the indications for even doing uh, MSI testing or MMR testing if you suspect Lynch syndrome. So in this case, in this patient stem, I guess, the oh, patient was super young, yeah, 32-year-old, didn't know her family history, and it comes down to the criteria you use to test, and there's the Amsterdam and the Bethesda criteria, which are most often used. And NCCN sort of has a mixture of both, but Bethesda seems to be more sensitive uh, than Amsterdam and has comparable specificity. But basically their criteria are anyone with colon cancer diagnosed under 50 years old, if they have a synchronous or metachronous colorectal or other HMPCC-associated cancer at any age, uh, if they have colorectal cancer with MSI histology at age less than 60, and MSI histology would just be what it looks like, you know, histologically, not without confirmed colorectal cancer with at least one first-degree relative with an HNPC tumor diagnosed less than 50 years old, or colorectal cancer and two or more first- or second-degree relatives with an HNPCC tumor regardless of age. So these you, I guess, have to memorize and store them away somewhere because they'll put come them, up on a board exam. I'm going to put them right next to in the brain, right next to <laughs> the different types of von Willebrand's disease. Oh, yeah. I'm going to put right essential. next to that. Essential. Then right next to that goes indications for germline uh, testing uh, in colorectal cancer. Hopefully they'll give an easy one like this where it's like a 20-year-old patient and you just have no question. Yeah, right. So I think they're going to make it obvious, right? So they don't have, they're not going to put you on the cusp. It's not going to be 59. The other curious thing is that, you know, the, there was a U.S. task force on, uh, on colorectal cancer diagnosis and management, and they recommend testing every patient with colon cancer for MSI. Who says this? If you look at the U.S. Task Force for, I forgot what it's actually called. I looked at it before I came here. I tried to find the most uh, official guidance document. Wait, testing them germline or their, or their t tumor tissue? Tumor tissue, oh, everyone. Okay. But isn't that because they're thinking about using these checkpoint inhibitors as like a subsequent line of therapy? Maybe, but should you do it all the time? I don't know. It's not, probably not necessary because if you already know it's a stage two that you're not going to treat with um, adjuvant therapy, uh, you don't really need it. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, it, yeah, and if you already... Yeah, I don't know if that's the answer. Yeah, and there actually have been uh, there actually have been studies on that as well, doing universal testing or testing based on these Amsterdam or Bethesda guidelines. And the diagnostic yield was no different. But I think the difference is the Amsterdam guidelines is for germline testing, right? True. And then this is for um, somatic tissue testing. Right. I see. So you could argue that having it for later lines of therapy, if they're you know, I mean, certainly if they're metastatic, but if they're certainly if they're metastatic, and if they're stage one uh, or two, you could debate it. And stage one, stage one, you don't need it. No. Stage two, you could debate it. Stage three, you don't need it either. Right. Well, you yeah. might argue if they're stage three B and close to being metastatic, and you anticipate you're going to need something soon, people would probably do it. Look at you, not giving the benefit of the doubt. All right. Well, <laughs> it's good to know. Okay. Great question, Dr. Olson. Thanks for coming on. Question of the week. And having tackled that question, let's go back to the interview. Talk for a minute about 
this group and how this is an age group that may feel invincible because mm-hmm. of how you feel when you're young and may also feel distrustful of authority. And and here you are, an authority, a doctor who sees mm-hmm. these patients, and here you are telling them that they are not invincible, they're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a really insightful way of putting it, I think, because um, it explains a lot of kind of some of the reactions of, of what you get, where some of the reactions are just completely shutting down and effectively not engaging with the, the care at all, um, because uh, if they don't think about it, if they don't engage with it, then they're still invincible and they still are, aren't, um, you know, aren't vulnerable to these type of things. And then, yeah, there is a lot of problems with authority. So uh, I think... Um, you know, what I've learned through working with our team here, and um, Brandon Hayes-Latin is one of the big um, leaders in AYA Oncology, which is why I'm here. Um, we kind of meet these young people where they're at, and that might mean not necessarily getting the best therapy that they could possibly get as far as, you know, by the book therapy, but um, we feel, and I feel in it with experience, is that if you don't meet them where they're at, then they're not going to get even close to the therapy you could have gotten them if they if you did so you know it might not be the most ideal therapy it might not be the textbook therapy but it's a therapy you can get them it's that they're willing to get that they're willing to get and that um, won't alienate them if they you know if things happen later don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good exactly and so some of that is you know uh, is just experience and, and working in the pop with the population realizing that yeah this isn't ideal and admitting that but at the same and telling so telling the patients too you yeah. know I mm-hmm. I mean I think that's the big thing is um, a lot of the times is you know just having a trust with them and saying hey I disagree with what you're doing and this is why but at the same time you know my job isn't to make you do something my job is to try to get you the best therapy that it's is possible in your situation and um, and that goes a long way and making them feel like they they can tell you anything they that um, they're doing, um, and and not judging them, and being really a safe space. I think is the be- the biggest thing in this population. Wow. Okay. I think that's that's just so many points that are so astute, and I think, I guess, I think listeners are probably thinking that whether they're young or old, they probably all want a doctor like you, Doctor Duell. So, with that said, let's jump in on what you yeah. want to talk about because you you pointed out this nice, I think. Nice way in which we sort of synthesize evidence in a place where there isn't a lot of evidence and how do we kind of make sense of different studies. And so it goes back a little bit to what one thing I mentioned earlier. So um, AYA, ALL, so Adolescent Young Adult Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia, either pre-B or T-cell ALL, um, has had uh, notoriously bad outcomes for AYAs and adults, mm-hmm. whereas, like I said, in pediatrics, for standard risk, you know, less than 10 ALL, the cure rates are 90, 95%, you know, incredibly high, and really with relatively low toxicity. So um, there's always a risk for long-term side effects, but really pretty low. And, and the COG, which is the Children's Oncology Group, it's a consortium. Um, that's the one nice thing that pediatrics has that adults don't, is there's really just one collaborative group, whereas in the adult world, I know they're working on that now with the Alliance and things like that, Um, but there are still multiple collaborative groups, and the more cooks you have in the kitchen, the harder it is to get Mm -hmm. things done, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, they did some incredible work, um, you know, back with basically just combination chemotherapy, kind of brute force agents, not any of these new fancy things that we are looking at now, and just by using them in different combinations and and testing what what works and what doesn't to really improve that um, that, uh, success rate that cure rate. I always say that this is like 
the the textbook example of why simple randomized mm-hmm. trials are so valuable. You randomize one way versus the other, one is a little bit better. You take that, go forward, randomize something else, a yep. little bit better. And just stepwise, incremental advancement. And the other thing they had in, to their, um, in their favor was very high percent enrollment yeah. among all eligible patients very high percent. We're talking upwards of 50% of people. Oh, more than that. More than that. I think 90% it, of people. Yeah, I mean, protocol. I think if you have an open study for a disease, almost every major, any, any, so that's a nice thing too, is there's fewer patients, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that, that forces you to have collaborative groups for one. Um, and then all of these patients are being treated in academic centers. They're mm-hmm. not, um, it's, it's not like our, um, uh, you know, adult model where there's so many patients and, you know, rightfully so, right. most of them are treated in community centers. I don't, by any means I'm not saying that you know we should be treating every adult in in an academic center that is totally not what I mean but in pediatrics they're all in the same place so it's just easier access and so you can um, get all these groups together and and you know make some interval changes between what you're doing and and some real improvement that being said um, we could have another couple hours on you know certain COG protocols and things that you know don't make sense as far as a natural progression from one to the other. So it's not perfect, and neither is perfect. Um, but they they've certainly done an incredible job. So. Mm-hmm. So back, way back then, they made all these improvements, but they noticed, hey, these young people, these adults are not having the same outcomes, right? So there were some retrospective studies that looked at if you were um, in an AYA range, and in the U.S., it's defined as kind of 13 to 40 or 15 to 40. In Europe, in, the, um, in Australia, they define it differently. Sometimes it's 13 to 25, 10 to 25, 15 to 25. But for all intents and purposes, let's say 15 to 40. So these people should have really no medical comorbidities. Um, they should be you know surviving if it's truly just tolerance of therapy they should be surviving just as much as a kid because they really have no other comorbidities that would be worrisome like if you get into the you know 60 70 80 year old range so but they weren't seeing that and so they they did a study comparing those of the same age who were treated in pediatric centers or in adult centers and basically the people who were treated in pediatric centers by pediatric oncologists had actually had a better survival so based on provider and location of therapy delivered they had a better survival now Obviously, people kind of took that and said, you know, is it because the providers are better? Are they doing something differently? Or they're using these, um, you know, the pediatric protocols and we're using, you know, very different protocols Mm -hmm. on the adult side. Mm -hmm. And I, as having... um, practiced both as a doctor on both sides. I do not feel that there is a better doctor on either side. I think everybody's unique. And I think most people would agree now that it was probably the protocols and the organization and things like that, that led to these uh, improved outcomes. So that led to some people doing kind of single studies, single institution. Um, uh, Europe was a little bit farther ahead and, and using some um, uh, more intense chemotherapy in, in, old, in older patients. And when I say older, I'm meaning more like the 20 to 30-year-olds, mm-hmm. not, not in yeah, the 70s right. to 80s. And then this group, um, which was through the CALGB, um, which partnered with um, SWOG, which is a Southwest Oncology Group, and the ECOG, which is Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, they, they put together a study. It was a single arm, um, but it was using the AALL0232, which is a pediatric-based protocol, um, and basically using that in adults and seeing if they tolerate it. It was really meant to be um, to, to see if they tolerate it and see if what kind of outcomes they got. And this is a 
uh, you're not going to run through the whole protocol because no. it's complicated. It's a lot of drugs and a lot of different regimens. It's regiments. a four-drug induction. Yeah. So, I mean, you could say there's there's induction, consolidation, yeah. and interim maintenance, um, delayed intensification, and then maintenance, which lasts for about three years for boys and two years for girls. But isn't the induction itself alternating cycles of different things? So, induction itself is four weeks, uh-huh. and it's basically weekly anthracycline, weekly pincristine. Prednisone is given at very high doses for 28 days straight, which is oh, actually hi. the hard. Um, it's like 30 milligrams per meter squared or something like that. Uh, oh, okay. 60 milligrams per meter squared. Uh, so per meter squared, so yeah. it was 30 BID. I was right. Yeah, ha, ha, right. Okay. So 30 milligrams per meter squared BID. But it's it's pretty high for 28 days straight. Yes. That's actually the hardest part for these patients to get through. It just destroys they them. Cushionoid. Yeah, and they're always cushionoid. Their muscles are wasted. They're sore all over. And then you add vincristine on top of that. They're neuropathic. And then they get one dose of pegasparaginase um, mm-hmm. during it uh, on day four. And, and it's given for the anti-leukemia effect or is it given just to tolerate the... It seems a bit no, high. Anti, anti, oh, the prednisone? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's the anti-leukemia Direct effect. Anti-leukemia yep. effect so yeah. it's it's a very effective medicine for B-cell leukemia, yeah. but um, it's just very hard to tolerate for long periods of time. And so that's one of the biggest differences is actually high doses of steroids. Yeah. The asparaginase, there have been studies in the past that have looked at how much asparaginase you get and yeah. if your outcome is better. And, yeah. you know, more asparaginase seems to be better for people. Um, but it's also difficult to tolerate for adults. They get um, hyperlipidemia, like triglycerides into the thousands. You can have a real increased risk for clots. Um, and so there's different supportive care that can kind of help with that. And a lot of liver toxicity, too. Mm, okay. So that was... One, one so this the, is Wendy Stock and colleagues. In Wendy Stock and yeah. colleagues, yep. And so she has been one of the leaders in adult ALL for a while now. Um, and out of University of Chicago. And she... And, and so... You know, it's been presented a couple of years ago as being reasonable to do. The safety uh, profile was relatively equivalent to kind of what um, has otherwise been used in uh, in ALL, um, things like hypersevad or some various other uh, regimens. And outcomes were, in comparison to other cohorts, this uncontrolled study reported, uh, although not as good outcomes as pediatrics, outcomes appeared to be better than prior AYA cohorts. Is yeah, that right? so they compared it to a historical cohort. And My the favorite. Overall, <laughs> <I> <laughs> you're going to do that. <laughs> uh, but, um, and they looked at overall survival. They looked at disease-free survival. Their primary endpoint was um, overall survival and event-free survival, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, their their disease, their overall survival was a median of 61 months, which is much better than what um, it was before. Um, and their event-free survival, w- they didn't reach the median, but mm-hmm. it was at three years, it was in 70-something percent. Right. And um, it appears that the, that the hazard rate declines over time. There's a tail on this curve they follow people out yeah. there's a fraction of people you're curing yeah so i mean you're really looking at the cure rate and what we usually quote is looking at the tail that kind of levels out is between 60 and 70 percent okay um and so you're, you're looking at a cure rate between 60 and 70 percent which is similar to what um the pediatric protocols would get in this area you know sure. in, the, in their in their aya patients you might get closer to 70 to 80 percent but again they're not treating 40 year olds sure. and one of the things that's interesting about this is they saw some clustering of biology so getting back to what we talked about before. There's a lot more pH-like um, ALL, which is um, traditionally so more, yeah. yeah, so which is traditionally more um, resistant to therapy, mm-hmm. increased relapse rate, things like that. And so the biology seems to be worse for this age group too. And it's pH-like based on what, gene expression profile? So or? yeah, gene expression profile, there's a patented chip somewhere that will nice tell thing. you if it is or not, but then also like CRLF2 um, uh, uh, mutations or not. Um, but there, there's a couple different pro- papers out mm-hmm. there that will go into that. Okay. Um, 
and some of that has been looked at to see if adding you know other therapies like tyrosine kinase inhibitors would help with the ph like mm-hmm. sure um and then there's a higher expression it seems like a, a philadelphia chromosome positive all in mm-hmm. this age group too but they're treated separately now yeah, with they're our, not on the, the onset paper yeah right? they're not on they're, this is all philly negative okay so um so that is a whole separate topic sure. too mm-hmm. but i mean what's interesting here is that it seemed to have you know better outcomes in their historical controls but okay. there there are some groups that still maintain that you know uh, a different regimen called hypercvat is impr- is better than or is the equivalent of this regimen mm-hmm. it it does have there are arguments to be made about what hyperzvad, as far as late effects, um, kind of uh, the differences is. It has a little bit more anthracycline in it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot more admissions for hyperzvad than there are for the pediatric protocol. Right. The- theoretically, the adult pediatric protocol um, would be only one admission for induction. I see. Theoretically, um, you could be out of the hospital for the rest of it, which okay. is great. Um, but for hyperzvad, you know, there are pretty much regular admissions for right. chemotherapy right. throughout that. Yeah. Um, and the you know the group from MD Anderson has shown actually a while back, almost ten years ago now, that they had equivalent overall survival at you know theoretically quote unquote cure rate or, or long term disease free survival in the um, sixty to seventy percent range as well, and that was with um, rituximab added to hypercevap. Mm-hmm. And what I think is interesting and, and what um, isn't accounted for is that they added rituximab for CD twenty positive ALL, and that's where a lot of their gain in survival was was mm-hmm. in the CD twenty positive um, mm-hmm. subset. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, one, cross-trial comparisons are very difficult, if not impossible anyways. But two, you have um, this subset of people, which is about 40 to 50% are CD20 expressing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have the, you know, half of the group that might, you might have a benefit from. Driving the outcome, perhaps. Yeah, you might have a benefit from giving this other agent that has been shown basically in anything that's been studied in CD20 positive to improve survival. Rituxin, where hope and CD20 are found. Exactly. If you can can find something that's CD20 positive that's been studied with rituximab, it's effectively always improved overall survival. Yeah, I guess Uh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, you would be the one I would think that I would ask if they did it. No, I guess I'd say the answer is, I mean, uh, it has always, perhaps not in individual studies, but in pooled analysis, has always shown benefit in CD20 positive. Okay, so what you're saying here is on the one hand, you have an uncontrolled phase two study by Stock and colleagues that shows Mm -hmm. very good outcomes from a pediatric regimen applied to adults, asparaginase containing. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have a paper that came out by Cantharagin and colleagues from the MD Anderson that uh, gives our hyper-CVAD that shows similar cure rate in the same sort of population, but these are both uncontrolled phase two studies, Mm -hmm. not been tested head to head. The Cantharagin study you're pointing out, well, perhaps one of the key drivers of that equivalent outcome um, was the addition of rituximab, which in the stock paper, they didn't have rituximab. No. And we've anecdotally, and I think others have given um, rituximab with this uh, pediatric protocol with really not added toxicity. toxicity, I mean, you might have, you know, there are some kind of infection concerns and in the cathargen paper um, they did have increased infections in the elderly um, and so the outcomes weren't by elderly you mean 35 to 40 no i mean like 70 80 oh, like I 60 see, 60 oh, or above they so they, they looked at adults too they actually did divide it and what the the 60 to 70 percent survival i should be clear sorry yeah, was in the in, in the, a subgroup analysis of the adolescent young adults um so up to 40 is what they did um, but if you're looking at over 50 60 70 they had increased toxicity with rituximab in the form of increased infections if my memory serves me correctly um and so that that's not what we're talking about though we're talking about you know still the young and healthy and seeing if we can and bump that survival number because um it's been you know it 
there's this myth about the second remission in, in ALL is, you know, if we if they relapse, you know, we'll just get them in second remission and take them to transplant at that point. Because one of the biggest differences in ALL to begin with was that pediatrics didn't take them straight to transplant. And one of the kind of biggest changes in the in the stock paper is that, you know, this wasn't a plan to take people to transplant in CR1. Most of, if not all of the previous chemos um, for ALL in adults were getting them to CR1 and then taking them to transplant, allogeneic transplant, obviously. And yeah. so, so this was a transplant-free um, study. Some people did go if they had MLL rearrangements, so high-risk cytogenetics. Yeah. Some of them did go, um, but there there wasn't necessarily data to support that. It's just kind of you know, it's just kind of what some people did because they what didn't feel comfortable with What about the paper? If you were so they didn't they didn't take them necessarily straight to transplant. Some of them did go kind of off study too yeah. and and like went to transplant, but there was um, a maintenance period for that, and there were delayed intensifications and in, um, the modified hypercevad too, um, where they during maintenance they kind of gave a couple cycles of hyper-CVAD with rituximab again later mm-hmm. on um, to prevent those early relapses or to prevent the refractory disease. Um, so it is modified from some of the other ones. And that's what they were really looking at is the modification, which include addition of liposomal uh, doxorubicin up front. In it, so intensifying the anthracyclines, but then also adding rituximab is what they were looking at really. Okay. Um, and the stock paper is really looking at kind of historical, what outcomes were kind of on um, mass versus this AYA regimen. I see. Okay. So, so how do you make sense of these two papers? Well, if you're at MD Anderson, I think our hypercevad is probably okay, okay. <laughs> because they have they have institutional data that shows it. You yeah. know that institutional data I don't think is generally univer- or universally generalizable. Generalizable. Thank you. Um, but uh, so I think if you're anywhere else besides MD Anderson, then you probably want to do this AYA protocol. Now, the biggest things at certain conferences I've asked is why don't we just add rituximab to the AYA protocol? Yeah. You know, so what do they say? That's a logical so, next step. Yeah. So that's what they did actually. So there's another alliance pro, or, um, study uh, that if you're a CD20 expressing, you automatically get rituximab. So it's not randomizing it to it. I so, see. so that'll be diffi- difficult. You can use then the results of this of the CALGB10403, which is this Wendy Stock study to start off with. You could compare it to that, but obviously it's a different time frame, right? So it's going to be still the cross trial comparison. It'll be a better cross trial comparison um, because there'll be the same groups running it. It'll be in the same a lot of institutions mm, but still the same has the protocol time trend but it, yeah, yeah but exactly has that so the new study though actually looks at randomizing inatuzumab into the mm. upfront setting inatuzumab ugamycin azogamycin i think ozogamycin ozogamycin yep like gemtuzumab ozogamycin yep say it again ozogamycin that's how i say it maybe i'm wrong but no, i don't know okay I, that's how it's spelled at least okay it's got a lot of it's got a lot of o's in it yeah there's the, a du- zo- the double o is a tough opening huh <laughs> it's, a, it's, 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 uh, it's a tough opening okay so yeah. this is a monoclonal antibody cd22 targeted tethered to um a cellular poison mm-hmm. the MMA. conjugated to colichomycin oh colichomycin yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so it's um it's been shown in a randomized phase three to be superior to um uh, chemotherapy for a refractory recurrent AOL. With a p value for overall sort of a 0.04. Yeah. Which did not meet the pre specified. The pre specified, I think, was 0.02. 035. Oh, yeah, yeah, 0.02. Yeah. yeah, 0.02. Well, it was close enough. It was close enough. Close I, enough. If you, look at the, <laughs> if you look at the curves, it's pretty hard to get a pointer in there. Yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, this, I think, um, I think it's a reasonable, I think it's yeah. a reasonable thing. It's um, because most of these patients are going straight to transplant, too. Mm-hmm. And that's your only hope of cure. Their, their theory, you 
you know, I think it's, and you might be able to comment on this more, obviously, um, but it, when you're comparing uh, a disease control thing to get you to a curative therapy, I think uh, you're going to see a lot of the differences in kind of the long-term survival type thing. And what they did show is that a much higher percentage of people who got this went straight to transplant, which really in this case is your only hope anyways. Yeah. So, um, But then they also look at the, well, how the tails of the curves look to you and that I... So, they're kind of not. Oh, uh, I mean, they're they're right here. You could get a yeah, you, could, okay. you could get a, a laser pointer in between there. Yeah. But they're pretty low numbers. Yeah. Um, so so there's a lot of uncertainty. I there. think there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and I, I'm, I, you know, I'm not saying that this is the best idea. And no, but, but this is the randomized part of the new trial. This is the random. So if you're CD22 positive, you'll go randomized between inatuzumab and no inatuzumab, and that'll okay. be done in consolidation, and okay. it's kind of in addition to everything else. So you you'll have still a good, um, kind of basal group, a, a good kind of standard of care group, which would be rituximab that you can compare to the old cohort. And then all of your CD22 negatives are going to be, um, who are CD20 positive are going to be treated with rituximab throughout. And it's pretty much the same as um, what the other one is. So as far as um, induction, consolidation, interim maintenance, delayed intensification, and then maintenance. The interesting thing is, is that the newest high-risk study in the pediatric world which now isn't going on anymore. It's been closed for a little mm -hmm. bit. They haven't opened up their new one yet. And I believe it's going to have inatuzumab up front as, as well. So I think it's going to be very similar to the That's Alliance it. study. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the the old one actually had more chemo than what they were doing. So by the time that the adult providers got this um, trial going, the pediatric providers had already added a second interim maintenance. So oh, interim see. maintenance contains contains capizine methotrexate. And um, there was a study, the 0232 study, which is what this was based off of, the adult study was based off of, was a randomization between Capizzi and high-dose methotrexate. Mm -hmm. So Capizzi methotrexate showed benefit in T-cell, high-dose showed it in B-cell, right. and so um, they chose uh, yes. um, Capizzi because they, they were open to T-cell in this um, study as well. Mm, um, then, yeah. But then the second um, uh, high-risk study in the pediatric world, the one that just came after that, um, actually had two delayed intensification. So one was Capizzi, one was high-dose. But we didn't do that. So or they didn't do that. I guess it's we for me for everything, but so I guess I want to say one comment about what I think you made is a very astute point, which is um, uh, in this population, I guess, although we are always interested in um, improving survival, what we're really interested in this population is improving cure rates. Yeah. And many of these clinical trials, for instance, the tower study, which is blinitumumab, um, for instance, the, the the study that you're looking at, the Contharjan study, but yeah. uh, 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 Inatuzumab. Yeah. Innovate. Innovate, Innovate, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Uh, Innovate, Tower. Um, these are powered for log rank, which is looking across the continuous ha Kaplan-Meier survival function. And for instance, in the Blino study, I think Blino versus chemotherapy in the Tower study, I think like even though the curves do separate and there's a statistically significant overall survival p-value, the, the tail of the curve is actually superimposable. Here, as you point out very astutely, the tail has yeah. few numbers at risk, so you're not so sure. But I guess what I want to say is it would be nice and perhaps desirable when you're talking about AYA leukemia to power and design the study um, to look for a difference in the cure rate, a mm -hmm. difference in three-year DFS. You know, that would be nice because yeah. we, we really want our drugs that don't just like 
you know, that don't just yield differences in transportation, don't just yield differences in average median, but actually increase curative fraction. That's what we hope for. And that's what they looked at in the stock paper. They yeah, were, I mean, that exactly. was what they were powered for. Is, they were, they uh, cared yeah. about it. Yeah, that's uh, what, but that's a cooperative group study. Yeah. And that's what I think this new one is for, too. Oh, good, um, good, good, I mean, good. we have it open here, and I've already enrolled somebody, so I, I should know it better. But, um, you know, that's it, it is it is powered for the same thing, I believe. Good, so. good. So I think it's I, I think they're interesting. I think we have a lot of new toys. And actually, I mean, even I tell my patients now, like, you know, I can because everybody always wants to know what numbers are. And, you know, I, I can tell them, you know, what kind of we historical, historical numbers, numbers yeah. are. But we have all of these new agents that um, it's not quite the surplus, like maybe in myeloma or something like that, mm-hmm. where you have all these new agents and nobody knows necessarily what order to use them in. Um, but we do have a lot of agents, including, you know, blinitumumab, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. We have all these CAR T cells and they're even developing new CAR T cells for anti-CD22 and various other things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, I think, figuring out what order to give them in and, and things like that is, is important. The one thing is is that you know a lot of these new agents offer a um, alternative to pretty intensive chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. So the pediatric um, protocols is something called R3, which is vincristine, um, dexamethasone, asparaginase, and mitoxantro, and then that's mm-hmm. the tra- that's the traditional relapse refractory reinduction protocol, and that is a tough protocol to I get see. through. Yeah. So some of these are toxic, but they're different toxicity, and it's a little bit more tolerable. That's interesting. Well, that was, that's a whirlwind of expertise, Dr. Duval, but I appreciate it because I think you have, um, you did a really nice job sort of telling us about the field of AYA and then you just really gave us a really solid, concrete example to sort of something that an AYA physician is going to have to spend a lot of time thinking about, which is um, two different studies uh, that within the AYA cohort have roughly the same curative tail. Um, one single center, one multi-center cooperative group study, one rituximab containing that perhaps drives the outcome in some malignancy, one non-rituximab containing, and how you kind of make sense of these two, how you use it in your practice, and then how you think about what's the next step in this ongoing clinical trial. So I think that's really nicely said. And uh, I think it allowed us to do a little bit of talking about, um, I think, what's most important in this disease, which is that curative tale. Mm-hmm. Dr. Duval, it's it's a pleasure to have you come here and spend some time on adolescent uh, young adult oncology. I can tell it's a passion of yours, and uh, I'm I'm grateful to have you in the field. It's great to see you here. Well, thank you so much for for allowing me the platform to talk about it. I'm always happy to talk about it for anybody who is willing to listen. Oh, that's good. <laughs> well, maybe there's out there right now yeah. is somebody in training who didn't know that this was a career path for them, but by listening to you, um, will feel inspired to pursue what you are doing. So you know, I do you. have yeah. a random trainees kind of from everywhere who email me out of the blue oh, because you do? they're interested in it. So so give me your email. Uh, the, the one I would say that um, anybody can find me online um, and they I'm absolutely happy to talk to anybody who's interested because I think you know I've been asked this at conferences I presented kind of how my training went and you know what I, what I think an adolescent young adult oncologist should be trained like and I think it is something that's unique you know it's something that I won't have a first real job hopefully soon but until I'm you know darn near 40 basically because oh of all the training extra training you do and everything like that so I don't think it's you for- won't have a new job until you're ineligible for these trial protocols Calls. Basically, yeah. I'm. I have a couple more years of AYA ness in me, and I'm pretty much that's about it. Wow. So, um, so I think it's something that people need to choose carefully, yeah. and um, and I don't think it's something that's for everybody. I don't think every hospital should have somebody who's dual trained. I don't think that's realistic. But I do think there's a place for me, and I do think I've learned something unique during doing this differently that I wouldn't have otherwise. And and so I hopefully that positions me to be able to help further this field and to help at minimum at least take care of patients really well. 
Well, thank you, Adam. And listeners can find Adam for questions of AYA Oncology. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.